sisters and brothers in our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, in the 2012 movie, The Hunger Games, there's a scene in the movie that wasn't in the books. But it's a scene that I love because it sort of captures the whole, uh, the whole essence of what the Hunger Games trilogy is about in these beautiful, chilling words. The scene, maybe, well, I just saw the movie this weekend, so that's why it's fresh in my mind. But maybe some of you remember the, the scene. The scene, it's in the first movie, and it takes place in the Rose Garden of President Coriolanus Snow. And it's a conversation between him and the head game maker, Seneca Crane. And President Snow is, is trimming, a ro trimming thorns off of a rose, which is beautifully symbolic in and of itself. He's trimming thorns off of a rose, and he asks, Seneca, why do you think we have a winner? And Seneca is clearly confused by this question, and, and uh, he asks, what do you mean? And President Snow simply repeats the question. He says, I mean, why do we have a winner? And Seneca doesn't respond. He's clearly confused by the question. And after a pause, President Snow says, hope. Seneca asks, hope? And President Snow responds, hope. It is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. A spark is fine, as long as it is contained. And then the game maker, clearly not getting the point, asks, so? And President Snow's response is very to the point and very chilling. He says, so contain it. The story of The Hunger Games is set in this dystopian world of Pan Am, which is sort of a, a, a fictional, futuristic United States that has gone through some terrible civil war. And The Hunger Games are this cruel tradition where the wealthy and powerful capital keeps its districts in check by having them send tributes every year. Two, two tributes, a, a boy and a girl, between the ages of, what is it, like 12? and 18, and the districts send these kids to the capital to fight to the death in the Hunger Games. And the sole victor of these Hunger Games is given wealth and power as a, a prize for winning. It's sort of like a modern-day Theseus myth. I don't know if you grew up with the, the Greek myths, but, the, but Theseus and the Minotaur, um, it's, it's sort of a, sort of a, a version of, of that myth. The, the capital needs the districts to survive and, because they supply the capital with, with food and with resources. And President Snow recognizes the fragile hold that he has on the world. And so he realizes that the districts, in order to keep them in check, the districts need to fear the capital. They need to fear its power. They need to fear its might. But the Hunger Games isn't really the best way to inspire fear. It would be just as effective to, to round people up and, and execute them at random. But President Snow recognizes something that's really discomforting 
Why have a winner? Because hope is the only thing stronger than fear. And so in the story of the Hunger Games, President Snow gives the people hope, while at the same time inspiring fear. The fear that their children will die in the Hunger Games, but the hope that their children might win the Hunger Games and escape this cycle of violence and poverty that's so characteristic of their society, that their children, there's a hope that their children might win the Hunger Games and live in prosperity. Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. And this is one of the amazing themes that, that makes the Hunger Games such, such a powerful, uh, powerful and compelling story. Hope and fear. These are themes that our psalm today picks up on too. Psalm 130 is a prayer to God for forgiveness, a prayer for mercy. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And therefore, you are feared. And this presents us with an uncomfortable truth. I mean, it's kind of unsettling, I think. This idea that forgiveness is scary. It's strange because forgiveness is the one thing that we praise God for the most. We see that in the songs that we sang today. We see that every time we come together to worship, we praise God for his forgiveness. We worship him because of what he's done for us. Without forgiveness, we're dead in our sins. We're unable to approach our God. Without forgiveness, we are lost. We, are, we wander around in the darkness of our own sins. Without forgiveness, we are slaves to sin. Unable to respond to the God of righteousness and grace. Unable to stand in his presence. But at the same time, forgiveness is terrifying. In a world so full of evil and injustice, the cry of our hearts is for justice. As fallen human beings, our, our sense of justice often takes on forms that don't conform to the will of God. We want revenge. We want retaliation. We kick people out. We shun them. We shame them. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. When someone does wrong, we want that wrong repaid. When someone commits evil, we want that evil paid back to them in full. When someone steals, we want their hands cut off. When someone lies, we want their tongue cut out. When someone kills, we want their life cut off. And so when we hear the words of Jesus as he's being nailed to the cross, Praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It fills us with a certain fear that justice will not be done. It fills us with a fear that, that mercy will triumph over justice, that the wicked will not be repaid for what they've done, that God's mercy somehow undermines 
God's grace. And there's nothing that, get our back, that gets our backs up quicker than when Jesus says, forgive as you have been forgiven. After teaching his disciples how to pray, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, after he teaches the Lord's Prayer, if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive people their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. This is why forgiveness inspires fear in our hearts. Because it requires that we let go of our hurt, that we let go of our pain, that we let go of our wrongs, that we let go of our revenge. That we treat others with the same mercy that God has given to us. And this goes so against our human sensibilities. It goes so against our, our, our fallen understanding of justice. We want justice. We want vengeance. And God tells us, it is mine to avenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You forgive as I have forgiven you. Another reason that forgiveness is scary is because the practice of forgiveness is a threat to the powers and principalities that rule this world. Despite our claims to equality and fraternity and liberty, our world inspires us to think of ourselves as better than others. And this is true in so many areas of life. The message of the cultural forces that vie for our attention is one of privilege and deserving. You are special. You have worked hard to get to where you are. You deserve to be treated better. And any threat to what we deserve, to what we see as our right, should be met with fierce and swift action. We deserve wealth. We deserve freedom from fear. We deserve a life without challenges. We deserve to live in a way that sets us apart from the poor, that lifts us above them, because we're better. <clears throat> the message of our culture is one that encourages us to think of ourselves as better than others. And so any threat to our well-being, any threat to our rights, any threat to our wealth or our privilege should be fought. Any threat to our way of life is met with retribution. Any attack on our greatness is met with vengeance. Any wrong committed against us is met with fierce justice. Forgiveness is not a part of our cultural language when it comes to these kinds of things. Nobody suggested that we forgive Al-Qaeda after 9-11, just like nobody suggested that we forgive the Nazis after World War II. These things, these things just aren't a part of the way that we think culturally. Our world requires vengeance. Our world requires justice. There is no place for mercy or forgiveness. These are a threat to the way the world works. But then, 
we get these stories, these powerful stories of forgiveness. And they fascinate us. And they capture us in a way. But we don't quite know what to do with them. I remember an incident from 2006 when a young man walked into a one-school, one-room Amish country school in Nickel Mines in the United States and shot and killed five young girls before committing suicide. I, was, I had just graduated high school, I think. And it was this terrible act of meaningless violence. But the response of the Amish community was one of forgiveness, it was one of reconciliation, in the face of this terrible violence, the Amish community and Nickel Mines reached out to the family of the shooter. The young man who had killed their girls. And they offered forgiveness and they cared for his wife and his kids because they recognized that they had lost a husband and a father just the way that they had lost their little girls. And just last year, we saw another story like this. As a white young man went to a prayer meeting at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, North Carolina, and shot and killed nine people. He shot and killed nine people in the express hope of starting a race war in the United States. This was a young man who was bent on hatred toward people who were different than him, and he went to a church in order to murder black people. And the response of this community of believers, which had just lost their pastor, had just lost eight of their members, to reckless hate was unbelievable. And at the bond hearing, the victims of the shooting, people who had lost family members, who had lost their pastor, one by one stood up and spoke to the young man who had committed this terrible act of hatred, who had committed murder in their place of worship, and they forgave him in court in the United States, one by one, these people stood up and prayed for his soul. Nadine Collier, who lost her mother, Ethel Lance, told the young man, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to my mother again. I will never ever hold her again. But I forgive you. May God have mercy on your soul. Felicia Sanders, who lost her son, Taiwanza, said, We welcomed you Wednesday night into our worship with open arms. Taiwanza Sanders was my son. He was my hero. May God have mercy on your soul.
Another woman who lost her sister to pain said, I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing DePayne always taught me is that we are the family built by love. We have no room for hate. And so we forgive. I pray for God's mercy on your soul. These stories of forgiveness are deeply moving, but at the same time, they're deeply disturbing. They make us uncomfortable. They make us afraid. And I think that the reason for this is because they reveal just how truly broken and sinful our world is. Our sense of justice is far from godly. Our legal system is far from equality. Our sense of vengeance is so, so far from grace. These stories point to the reality that our world is broken, that it's deeply in need of a savior, and that all of us are touched by this brokenness, that all of us are stained by this sin. The psalmist cries out, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one. There is no one who is free from the stain of sin, no one who is unaffected by its grip on this world, no one who can save themselves by their own power, no one who can stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. All are equal at the foot of the cross. That's what we say. All are equal at the foot of the cross. And that's a terrifying thing. Because that means that we are no better than anyone else. That means that we don't deserve better than anyone else. That means that when we stand next to the worst sinner in the world before God, we are the same. And that's terrifying. These stories of forgiveness point to this reality that all of us are broken by sin, and that's terrifying. But they also point us to a deeper reality. That God is at work in this world to break the power of sin. These stories of forgiveness are, are, are fascinating, I think, and, and capture us so completely because they are moments where the mercy of God breaks in to the darkness of this world. Moments when the grace of God shines so clearly that we can't deny it. When we see the response of the Nickel Mines Amish community, the response of the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, we cannot deny that God is at work in this world. These are glimpses of the kingdom of heaven breaking in to this reality. And they make us uncomfortable because they challenge our worldly notions of justice and righteousness but they fill us with hope 
Because we know that they point to a day when our Lord Jesus Christ will return and death and sin will be destroyed and the kingdom of heaven will be established on the earth. They point to a day when hate will be conquered by love, when justice will roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. They point to a day when mercy and justice will meet in the face of God, the beautiful grace that's offered to us on the cross, the grace offered to a dying criminal who cries out to the Lord of life, and Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, Today, you will be with me in paradise. They point to the day when the kingdom of heaven will be established on the earth, and the dwelling place of God will be with his people. And this is the reality for which the psalmist hopes and waits. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. But this hope is not only for him. And the psalmist cries out to all of God's people to put their hope in the God who offers forgiveness. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And this is exactly what God accomplishes for us through Christ. In the person of Jesus, our God came down to earth and lived among us. He suffered as we suffer. He died a criminal's death, the death of a sinner. He took our shame and our disgrace on himself, carried our punishment in his own flesh, and even as he was being nailed to the cross, prayed forgiveness on those who had wronged him. It's in him that we put our hope. The reality of sin in our world is terrifying, and the forgiveness that God offers us is equally terrifying because it challenges the systems that we rely on for justice, the systems that we have created and that we put our trust in. The mercy of God threatens our worldly justice systems, and that fills us with fear. But hope is stronger than fear. Hope fills us with the assurance that God is in control, that God will defeat sin and death, that God will bring justice, and that with him is unfailing love and full redemption. Hope pulls us out of our sin and misery to embrace the forgiveness that is offered to us in Christ, and hope allows us to extend that forgiveness to those around us, knowing that there will come a day when Christ will return to establish his kingdom on the earth. Hope allows us to trust in God alone for our salvation, to trust in his forgiveness, to trust in his mercy and his grace. Hope allows us to look and to pray for the coming day when God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray with the psalmist, people of God, Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem us 
from all of our sins. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, let's pray. O Lord our God, we come before you this morning afraid because we are troubled by sin and we recognize that that sin is not just in the world around us but it's also in our own hearts and without your help we cannot stand in your presence and this fills us with fear but we put our hope in you because you are the God who forgives our sins. You are the God who washes us clean. You are the God who nourishes and sustains us with your own body and blood. You are the God who fills us with your spirit to transform us to be your holy people. And for that, we praise you, O Lord our God. We thank you for the forgiveness that you have offered us in Christ. And we pray that you will grant us the grace to offer that forgiveness to one another. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.